Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. We are sick and tired of the inaction here in Washington and around the country at different state capitals and in different cities of politicians that are owned by the NRA and not listening to their constituents in the future of America. Today is just the beginning. Parkland and the rest of the world have been sprinting, but these sprints are just warm-up laps. As of now, we have officially started our marathon that will last until we make a change for safer gun policies. There are two of the students from uh, Parkland, and they're participating in Washington. In the March for Our Lives, uh, 839 gun violence demonstrations are taking place in the United States. And in other cities in the U.S., uh, Washington, other cities in the U.S., and uh, globally. Now, it's interesting that um, I was reading a story, Washington Post story, 187,000 students in the U.S. from 193 primary or secondary schools say they have firsthand experience with gun violence on campus, 187,000. And authorities in Broward County have told the students... That, of course, is where the school in Florida is, Parkland, uh, that they don't expect these protests to have any significant effect on uh, gun control or to bring an end to school shootings. We're going to talk about this whole issue of firearms and firearm ownership and school shootings, and but we're going to look at it from the Canadian perspective, with a peek at the United States as well. Tony Bernardo is the executive director of the Canadian Sports Shooting Association. He's an NRA member. He's with us, Ed Berlew, criminal lawyer. He represents um, firearms legislation, or he represents clients who have been charged with firearms offenses, often when they've just been using guns to protect themselves or their families or their property. They both join me on the Roy Green Show. Tony, Ed, good to have you with us. Good to be here. Nice to be here with you. Tony, let's have you uh, first. What is your response to the March for Our Lives in the United States? You understand what these young people and their supporters are, are calling for. How do you interpret what they're doing, and what's the likely effect of all of this going to be? Well, I think that they have a very tough road to hoe. The Second Amendment of the United States Constitution specifically guarantees to individuals the right to keep and bear arms that has been uh, run through the Supreme Court of the United States. They have affirmed it's an individual right. Changing the Constitution is a mountainous climb. Ed, your thoughts? You're an American living in Canada. I think you're also a Canadian citizen, right? Yes, I am. Okay. I've been since I was, like, 16 years old. Okay. So you, you're also an NRA member, as, as is Tony. Yep. How, I'll ask you the same question. What's the likely impact of these demonstrations, are they going to mean a significant shift in any direction, or will they not matter much ultimately? Well, I think on a on the basis of how things are approached socially within the United States, they're going to have an effect. Uh, legislatively, I don't think it'll do anything because of the strength of the Charter, excuse me, of the, the Second Amendment, and the fact that that's been run through the courts, as Tony says. Uh, socially, however, there's going to be more pressure on uh, acting in certain ways, doing things in certain ways, not doing this, not doing that. And there will be a lot more shaming of gun owners by some gun owners and not by others. For instance, we even get a bit of that up here. I mean, people who like hunting birds and ducks with shotguns sometimes look at those of us who like hunting birds and, and ducks with shotguns, but also like shooting AR-15s, well, we get shamed for having an AR-15. It's just as legal as your shotgun. That's going to happen in the United States. Uh, I, can, I can see it happening and feel it happening. I've heard it happening. So the AR-15 and the AR-15 type of uh, rifle, they're called, euphemistically called assault rifles, but that's really not the proper uh, name for them. That's but uh, but Tony, if the AR-15 is the flashpoint, what does the AR-15 represent to the American gun owner, to the National Rifle Association? And you know that it represents really the most negative possible um, uh, reality for those who are opposing 
the gun legislation and the Second Amendment as it exists now? Well, I think the, the U.S. media certainly demonized the firearm, Roy. Uh, specifically, it, it, it's nothing more than just a semi-automatic rifle. It's no different than any other semi-automatic rifle. In Canada, I've got to, I've got to drag us back here to the Canadian experience because many Canadians believe we have laws like the United States, which, of course, we don't. In Canada, it's a five-shot target rifle. That's all it is. Nothing more, nothing less. We've had them in Canada since the 60s. They're used peacefully and lawfully on shooting ranges all the time. Let's uh, look at this, uh, get your thoughts on this Bill C-71, which was introduced by the Liberals. And uh, there are many people in this country, at least according to emails that I've seen, who are drawing a parallel between C-71 and what's going on in the United States. Clearly not the same. But what is, your, what is your impression of Bill C-71? How successful is it going to be in what was uh, outlined as one of its main objectives, and that was to take guns out of the hands of gangbangers in urban areas? Oh, it's not going to do—sorry to jump in. It's not going to do anything about gangbangers no. in urban areas. It, it's so far from that. Look, half the legislation that's written in C-71 is about— uh, putting some power back in the hands of the RCMP, who really don't have any legislative basis for that power, and it doesn't give them that legislative basis. And the other thing it does is it, 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 it demonizes two non-restricted firearms. They really are non-restricted, as now being prohibited firearms, the CZ-858 and the SIG rifle. Uh, that's really what it was about. I mean, it was just uh, slapping those gun owners again. Bouncing them back and forth. Uh, the other thing is, they, they oh, well, we're going to look at your your uh, eligibility to have a firearms license. We're not going to just look five years back. We're going to look back right to the beginning of time. Wow, that's going to be a mess. Yeah. How does this affect your practice of law, Ed, when you're the one who is generally called upon by people who have had their homes perhaps invaded or felt their lives under threat and have used a legal firearm? to protect themselves and their families. How does this C-71, does it impact on you at all? Oh, very much so. I've already, I've, I've seen the attitude of it starting. Uh, the, if a person has any type of little scratch on their history of, uh, by way of uh, a police action that may have said, oh, we're, we, we're taking you in for questioning and nothing happens, you've got to report that. Uh, let's say you're a veteran and you came out of a war campaign and you had some depression, and you were treated for a couple months, and then, you know, the psychiatrist said, you're fine, get back to work, get back to duty, whatever. Well, now you're going to have to have that rehashed by some police officer in, in, in the fun, firearms licensing area, uh, and, and, and perhaps even have to go before a judge to get your license validated again. Mm -hmm. Even if you had the license... Let's say I've had license for 20 years, and something yeah. happened 10 years before that 20. Right. I didn't have to talk about it ever. Now I have to have my records and justify that I can have my license. So all of the parameters that were in place when you got your license were now backdated to the right. beginning of your time, but the beginning of your, your time as an adult. And, oh, and no. more, so, more so, too. High school. Okay. More so, too, Roy. This, this bill, C-71, is enabling legislation. The section that Ed's talking about here enables the RCMP to deny somebody a firearms license on the flimsiest of evidence. Things that happened 40 years ago can now be used to deny a license. The, the second part of it is the creation of a thing called Section 12-9. It is a well. It's a black pit that the government can willy-nilly just throw firearms into at any provocation, instantly, without any any recourse, without any redress from, from the firearms community. Once again, the liberals have proved themselves to be enemies of our community. And uh, I, I don't know what to say about that any more than that. All right, Tony, let me ask you this then, final question for you. What does the Canadian Sports Shooting Association consider to be 
um, appropriate legislation as far as gun ownership in Canada is concerned. If you're if you're writing the legislation, what does it look like? We we have always believed strongly in mental health checks. We've always believed strongly in criminal background checks. If the, if they had gone ahead and they had said, you know, we're going to extend the mental health checks from five years to ten years, we would have probably smiled and nodded. But just going right back to the, you know, even including youth records and things like everything. No, I'm sorry that we, we just can't support that. It's just overwhelming. And, you know, I really don't believe they're going to glean any evidence from that that will make a difference to our society. Okay, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Good talking to you as always. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Scott Newark joins me, former Alberta Crown Attorney and uh, also former senior policy advisor to a former federal minister for public safety. Scott worked on and helped write previous federal firearms laws. Now we have C-71 in this country, and we have the March of Our Lives taking place, the gun violence demonstrations taking place in the United States, the biggest one in Washington, D.C. Scott, let me start, first of all, with you. What's What's the relevance, and I mean this very respectfully, what's the relevance of that horrid school shooting in Florida and the previous school shootings that we've all agonized over to writing new legislation, new firearms legislation. And and, and I just looked at a story the uh, day before yesterday where police officials in Broward County said to the students and really to the community, don't expect much to change because of your protests. Yeah, well, I uh, don't actually think, uh, fortunately, that it, the uh, terrible event in the United States has that much relevance in uh, Canada. We have an entirely different culture. Uh, th- theirs is one that is uh, uh, includes this notion of, uh, you know, um, uh, protect the individual being able to protect themselves from the state and that being done through guns and everything else. That's just not been part of our culture. We haven't had those same kinds of of incidents, and there is a much greater, I think, um, concern or even caution in the minds of most Canadians about uh, uh, people possessing guns and what the purpose is. And uh, there's, a, I think, a, great, a much greater recognition of the potential harm to the public at large, and that that therefore justifies some kind of regulatory regimes in relation to them. I think the real point is what exactly it is that we do by way of regulation, what the purpose of it is, and how effective it is in terms of uh, public safety. And that's, that's been under debate again uh, here in Canada because of the introduction this week by uh, the Liberal government of Bill C-71, which uh, has a bunch of new regulations for firearms owners. Uh, are we properly, and, and firearms owners, I legal firearms owners, are responsible people. I talk to uh, quite a few people who own guns, and I ask them questions about where they store their guns. I ask them questions about their firearms. And I will often hear, particularly from people who, uh, who have kids and have firearms, that they'll have their firearms with a trigger lock on it. That's the minimum security device that you required. They will also have them in a locked safe. So the, the trigger, uh, trigger lock and the locked safe and whatever ammunition they use is in another safe, locked in another room in a locked closet. So that that's taking personal responsibility for what you have in your possession. But are the laws that we have now, or were the laws before C-71 and the regulations, sufficiently strong to provide you, as a former Crown Attorney and Senior Policy Advisor to a federal public safety minister, and somebody who wrote gun legislation, uh, was what we had prior to C-71 enough? Um, no, in my opinion, it wasn't. And I think that's one of the distinctions that is the most important. You have to, uh, and I don't agree with your premise that uh, all gun owners are, or all legitimately licensed gun owners are, as you describe it, as uh, uh, properly minded, uh, as you put it, uh, because uh, not everybody possesses uh, firearms for uh, those purposes. And I think that's the real core of this, is you've got to differentiate between the, the overwhelming majority of people who are, you know, uh, properly motivated, but others who either exploit the system in its weaknesses or don't comply with the system but are still acquiring firearms, I mean criminal gangs, 
that that's where you need to make sure that the laws are getting the results that you want. Yeah, well, I was trying to make the distinction between those people who are irresponsible and those who are responsible, those who take the fact that they have a firearm, understand what it's capable of seriously and act accordingly. Uh, sure, but for example, um, there, there are elements of these uh, new uh, provisions that are in Bill C-71 um, that I think most people would certainly agree with, like extending the, uh, in effect, area of screening uh, to be determine whether somebody should be given a license. Right now, we look essentially at the previous five years' history of the individual applying for a license. The new regime will make it, uh, will broaden that to be in effect over the, per- the person's life. I don't have a problem with that. But for me, in terms of public safety, I think the larger issue is the, pe- the criminal gangs who were acquiring guns and in rural uh, centers all across Canada, this, the number of shootings and homicides uh, is going up. And those are people who aren't applying for gun licenses. Okay, And I want to know how it is that they're acquiring the guns, where mm. they come from. And supposedly, there's been a huge increase in the number of uh, guns illegally acquired by break-ins to people uh, who lawfully possess guns. Uh, you know, Forgive me, maybe it's the prosecutor, but how do the bad guys know which places to break into? Well, I don't know. And how big is that? How, how large? Scott, I have to take a break, but how large is that number? Uh, supposedly increasing and up uh, into, if I, it's in the, uh, the documents released by the government, it's into the uh, thousands. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Now, I can't, I can't imagine the, the horror that the uh, students in Florida are living with and other uh, schools in the United States and in Canada. There have been school shootings in this country as well. And uh, when you're that age, to have to try to come to grips with, with what has happened in that kind of horrific situation, I understand why they're doing what they're doing. And this sort of abominant, ab- abomination cannot be allowed to continue. Really, it can't. It has to be dealt with. It's not easy. There is no simple solution. Um, Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney in Alberta, also Senior Policy Advisor to Federal Public Safety Minister, who, as I said, had a hand in writing firearms legislation for this country. Scott, when you mentioned, and Tony Bernardo and Deborah Lou mentioned as well, that when you're applying for a license now to own a firearm, your history is not just for the last five years of your life. It's all the way back to when you were a kid. I don't quite understand how that works, because if you're a convicted juvenile, a young offender, doesn't your criminal history disappear from the record when you hit 18? Um, Potentially, but I think the real focus of that is on mental health issues. Okay, okay. Um, And, you know, that's one of the things that uh, arguably makes sense, although... My disappointment with the new bill, uh, Roy, is that uh, prior to its introduction, the government made a big deal of talking about um, how it was going to address uh, criminal gangs and their use of guns. There was a big conference, and that's what a lot of us were actually looking for. And it turns out instead that there, with one exception, there doesn't appear to be much in there that is really going to be focused on criminal gangs, it's, it's really just more regulations. Well, it, that's what seems to be the case for many people who own firearms in Canada. They feel that whatever the government is, usually it's a liberal government, that uh, where they introduce more stringent regulation for gun ownership, the feeling is, and I think it can be fairly well substantiated, that the focus of the legislation appears to be on the legal gun owner when the intent should be as you said, and as they've been saying they would, focus on the urban criminals, the gangbangers. And this is something that uh, you sent me a note. The idea here is to combat the rise of gun shootings in urban centers in Canada, and this legislation doesn't really do that. No, I don't think so. The one uh, uh, point that, that does is there's some conflict. I've seen it reported on both sides in terms of uh, if you're going to buy a gun, any kind of a gun, whether it's a uh, long gun non-restricted, a restricted firearm. We have three categories, non-restricted, restricted, which includes handguns, and prohibited, which is the more automatic uh, weapons, um, that when you go to buy one, that you have to confirm your the validity of your license. And that, in the new bill, 
uh, is going to be done and it's going to be required to be done for all categories of guns and, and done electronically, which I think makes perfectly good sense uh, because the idea that somebody would be able to do that without verifying their entitlement is ridiculous. To some but people, it's going to start sounding like heading back toward a gun registry. Well, it's the other side of it because what they're doing as well, too, is they're saying that the commercial vendors of guns have to keep records of that. And now the police would be able to access it, but uh, we already keep records on restricted and non-restricted sales. But the, that's what the uh, Conservatives got rid of the long gun registry on. This would, in effect, create a database of transactions that the police would be able to access, although only through judicial warrant. My concern is some of the more trivial things, like, for example, if you're going to transport your firearms from one location to another, uh, again, the Conservatives loosened the restrictions on that, and this uh, bill will restore greater restrictions. And, you know, from, from my perspective, looking at this and how we're going to deal with gangs, excuse me, but the gangsters don't call up and go, yes, I'm going to be taking my gun to go and shoot somebody today. Can I get a travel permit, please? Like, I mean, it's just not going to happen, right? So instead of focusing on those kinds of elements and where are they getting the guns from, are they coming across the border between ports of entry? How can we fix that? Shouldn't we get some kind of a notification? Mayor Tory made this point yesterday, I thought, very well, um, that if somebody, you know, living in downtown Toronto suddenly buys 10 guns, shouldn't we ask about that? Like, what's going on? Those are the kinds of things that I think would have been helpful and would have targeted, frankly, the illegal use of guns rather than the legal use and ownership of guns. All right. Guns. Now, you, you became very active on this issue when you were in law school. <laughs> I know some things about you. So, well, actually, so, so, so you were a young guy in, in law school and you were active on this. Today's focus in the United States and in other countries with this, um, the, the demonstrations that are, that are taking place um, is also on safeguarding young people and in the school environment. What, what can be done to accomplish at least some of that? Or is, this go- is it going to be part of a larger package, Scott, and I hate to use the word hope, but you hope it won't happen? The, um, I, I think to avoid the kinds of uh, incidents that we've seen in the United States. I think things like, uh, you know, better screening in terms of mental health issues, uh, making sure that the different uh, databases are talking with each other so that if, you know, somebody, there are cases that have gone, you may remember Roy, the, uh, the guy who was discharged from the, uh, uh, the psychiatric hospital, but he had a gun license, and he went on and he killed the CTV uh, broadcast. That's right, in Ottawa. Yeah. Uh, Brian okay, Smith. That happened because, you know, the mental health database didn't talk to the police databases, so they didn't know, even though they would have had the legal authority to take his guns, they didn't know that he was in that. So, Scott, this raises yeah. the question about different jurisdictions. That, so the, kind uh, of, that kind of, though, database and infor- relevant information sharing is the, uh, the thing that I think would, would probably help the, uh, the most in those circumstances, but also keeping track of, you know, what people are acquiring, what kinds of guns. You know, there are still. I'm going to be talking to uh, Patricia in High River in a couple of minutes' time in Alberta. And in 2013, long after the floodwaters had receded, the RCMP yeah. were still entering homes. And they were saying they were looking to see if they could rescue anybody. Well, there was nothing to rescue people from. And the feeling was, and I interviewed the RCMP on that particular day when the news hit. And they asked me for my questions before, I, uh, before they agreed before. to an uh, interview. And I gave, them, I gave them the question. Normally, I don't. And what has come out of that, I think, is just a sense that the RCMP at that time were interested in only one thing, and that is getting into people's homes and finding out if they had guns and if they were properly stored. And so it was basically an illegal search and, and uh, entry and search. There's a, there's a mistrust, I think, I think among right. gun owners, legal gun owners, of the motivation and the motives of government. Yeah, I think you're right about that. They didn't exactly handle that uh, uh, episode very well. And that's one of the other changes in C-71. The, um, the, now the classifications of the guns themselves, whether they should be restricted or prohibited, this, this bill will give that back to the RCMP. So one of the things the Harper government did is they took it and made it into something that, like a normal regulatory system that, a, that the government would actually do, uh, which, by the way, if you don't like it, and it's, you know, the government proposes to change the regulation, you can have public input on it, 
and somebody is held accountable. This legislation will give it back to the RCMP, and I know from some of the gun owner organizations that has raised very much some concerns because they don't trust the RCMP with respect to this, that their uh, members are going to be treated fairly. You worked with uh, many different governments that were in, in power and seated in Ottawa. You worked with Alan Rock, um, yeah. who I know you respected a great deal or respect a great deal. What was the uh, what are the closest we come? Uh, uh, what was the closest we came to having a government in in Ottawa that understood how to approach the firearms issue from the perspective of the legal gun owner community in Canada and those who say no 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 no, no nobody really needs to own guns. Sixty nine percent of uh, of urban residents of this country, by the way, told pollsters not long ago they didn't think guns belonged in urban areas of Canada. Uh, this may surprise you, but I think I probably pretty much agree with that, except for, you know, in being in the hands of law enforcement. Um, that's the difference in the culture between ourselves as, and, as you pointed out, the, uh, the United States. Uh, for me, the issue has always been um, respecting the property rights of lawful firearms owners and targeting criminal use and not doing a one-size-fits-all approach because there are different aspects, and not ignoring the lethality of the property involved, namely firearms. Okay, they, you know, they are inherently um, uh, deadly uh, items, weapons, and so they have to be treated accordingly, in my opinion. But that's what I'm disappointed about in this bill, is that it, for me, instead of dealing with what I think a lot of us were looking for, including people inside government, I can tell you, focusing on guns and the, uh, the criminal use of them, it seems to be a step back towards the, uh, the regulation of people who lawfully possess them. Okay. Scott, always good talking to you. Thank you. All right, Roy. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Filibuster that the Conservative Party of Canada held, an overnight filibuster, over the Liberal government's refusal to produce the National Security Advisor to Justin Trudeau to testify at a parliamentary committee about why and how the accusation was made that uh, somehow an Indian government agency might have been responsible for convicted terrorist Jaspal Atwal's presence during Trudeau's trip to India. That's still such a bizarre thing to think about, what happened in, in those days that Mr. Trudeau was, was in India. But uh, the filibuster went overnight, and it wasn't something to be ignored. There were 260 motions that were brought forward by the Conservative Party that all had to be voted on, and a significant number of them had to do with lines from the budget. And uh, if not enough uh, votes had been there on the Liberal side to defeat the motion, that would have been a confidence issue, and we might be on the way to to another federal election, not next year, but now. Candace Bergen is the House Leader for the Conservative Party of Canada. She joins us on the Roy Green Show. Ms. Bergen, good to talk to you. Hi, Roy. Good to be here. So put this into a perspective for us. Uh, we know the bits and pieces. We were aware of what uh, Mr. Daniel Jean said, uh, the Prime Minister's bidding. Some people weren't supposed to know his name or mention his name. And uh, so here we were with, uh, with your party deciding you were going to fight back over the government's non presenting of Monsieur Jean to a parliamentary committee. What was it really all about? Well, Thursday we had a chance. We have uh, occasionally a chance to bring forward our own motions. And so Thursday we brought forward a motion that was, uh, it, it was a very simple motion that would ask that Daniel Jean talk to parliamentarians and allow them to have the same briefing that he had given to members of the media. And uh, we've been asking for this in question period. We've been trying uh, to get committee to do it, but the Liberals refused to allow Mr. Jean to testify. Now, hearing from uh, from individuals at his level um, of security is not unusual. Committee, the Public Safety Committee hears from the head of CSIS all the time. They hear from the head of uh, Correctional Services Canada, the head of the RCMP. It's not unusual for public servants at that level to testify before committee. But the Liberals have been doing everything they can to stop Daniel Jean from appearing. We put the motion forward on Thursday. We had earlier in the week uh, put a number of motions on, on notice regarding the budget because we knew that was one small tool that we had to get their attention and to show them that we were serious about this request regarding Mr. Jean. 
they voted against our motion on Thursday night, and so we just uh, moved all. I moved all of the motions that I had put on notice, and thus began the the voting. Now, all the Liberals would have had to have done was have said, "We'll let Mr. Jean come to committee for one hour and answer your questions," and all of the voting would have been done immediately. But they clearly, Roy, are willing to do anything. Justin Trudeau is getting his caucus to do pretty well anything to keep Mr. Jean from being at committee. And I think it, it really shows that there's something that they're worried about coming out, and, and we don't know what that is. So we're not going to give up. You think it's something more than personal embarrassment for the prime minister of this whole episode having taken place and unwound the way it did? It was a disastrous trip, not it just was. as far as not just as far as what he was wearing and all of his uh, all, all, all of the the dress. It was disastrous because he invited a convicted attempted murderer and terrorist to be part of his entourage. He then blamed a backbencher and said, you know, oops, it was a goof up, and then simultaneously blamed the government of India. Now, if you know, as, as some reporters have said to me, well, maybe it's both. Well, then explain that. This should not be left for parliamentarians to have to guess at. It shouldn't be left uh, for our ally India to try to figure out what exactly is the government of Canada blaming them of. And it's a really simple request. Have Mr. Jean appear. In fact, about uh, midway through the night, Roy, I sent out a, a notice and I asked uh, the House leader for the, for the Liberals, Bardish Chagger, would you guys agree to 30 minutes? We just want to be able to ask him for the same bit of information that he gave the whole press gallery and the media that were on this trip. And they were, they, she said to me, absolutely not. You're not getting D- Daniel Jean. So w- why not? And they won't answer that question either. No, they don't. So you just have to wonder, what are they covering up? Is it, is it, is it because, is there something, something misleading? Did, did the, the PMO under the direction of Gerald Butts and the Prime Minister try to get the, use the security advisor for political purposes and now they can't explain it away? Um, maybe, maybe the, the, maybe the PMO knew more and they're not telling. Like the, in the absence of the facts, one is only left having to speculate and, Listen, this is too serious. This isn't just about, um, you know, something political going on in Ottawa. This affects our relations with uh, one of our closest allies, India, one that we want to have a, as a strong trading partner. And it, it's also about the credibility of, of us as Canadians, about our government and the, and the prime minister who is reflecting us when he's going abroad. He caused problems of his own accord, and he's now basically using our reputation to cover up for his own mistakes. It's interesting because I spoke with uh, with a journalist in uh, New Delhi, a national journalist in India. He was on this program, and we talked about Mr. Trudeau's visit, and we brought up the national security um, advisor, and uh, he had uh, very little positive to say about Trudeau's visit. First of all, when I asked him whether Mr. Trudeau had in not damaged but done nothing to to improve relations between India and Canada. He said, absolutely not. He'd not done anything. He said, the Indian government didn't want Mr. Trudeau in India at all, certainly not for a week. And that became obvious. And uh, he said, we know that he, he came not to have any relations with us, but really to try to generate support among the Indo-Canadian community in Canada. So there was a lot of disaffection for Mr. Trudeau, at least from what we gathered from this journalist while while he was, was while he was in India but this whole issue with Daniel John is bizarre why would you why would you at all want to be in any way associated with Jaspal Atwal's presence and have an invitation go to him to attend a dinner at which Trudeau was going to be present when he's a convicted terrorist and was was uh, you know was convicted of attempted murder why why would you do that at the very least you think when he'd get back that he'd want to square things with Canadians, and the best way the Prime Minister could have done that was not wait for the Conservative Party to challenge him. I'm sure he would have challenged anything that he would have said, probably, but to get up himself in Parliament and say, I'm going to, I want to tell you what it was all about. But he didn't do that. He didn't even answer any questions that you asked. No, no, he didn't. I mean, he wasn't He wasn't in the House of Commons on Wednesday again. He's, uh, he's been missing from question period um, so much of the time. Um, you know, the, the Justin Trudeau has failed on so many fronts, but I, I think one of the most obvious is this whole promise. He made people think he was going to be transparent and sunny ways and, and you know, just, uh, being open, and that, that was the, the greatest disinfectant. 
so much of what he does is so incredibly disingenuous. And I think even what this journalist said to you about uh, Trudeau's visit to India, India saw through how disingenuous it was. It wasn't about Trudeau going try to trying to build relations and, and make make things better for the Canada India relationship. It was his own self interest, and so he has he seems to on so many uh, fronts put his interests before the interests of Canadians. You're listening to the Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from two to five on 900 CHML. When the Prime Minister of this country fails to put Canada's interests above his own is it's really worrisome and we've seen him do it on so many issues whether it's fiscal issues you know around the budget and spending whether it's his his ethical lapses around going on on holidays that uh, benefit him or massive taxpayer spending to benefit himself and now we're seeing him sacrifice transparency uh, and and some answers for parliament really you know respect for parliament and respect for Canadians Again, for his own interests. I mean, this guy is is failing. I think a lot of people voted for him, thinking that he was going to deliver on on a whole bunch of promises, and he has failed. And it's not just a failing in terms of his policy, but there seems to be a lack of judgment, a lack of of, of how, knowing how how to put your country ahead of yourself as the prime minister of the country. Can argue, can argue with you at all. When I think of the India uh, visit, how can you possibly? argue that that was in any way a positive experience for Canada and the relationship between our two countries. You think this is a Jerry Butts special? Listen, we all know how close Jerry Butts is with the Prime Minister and that he's pulling a lot of the strings. We know we can see that on a number of policy issues, I mean, around pipelines, around uh, shutting down uh, investment, um, our competitive edge is being lost. And I think we have uh, Jerry Butts to thank for that because he's leading and guiding the Prime Minister on a, lo- on a lot of this. My my suspicion is that uh, PMO, under uh, his guidance, sent out Mr. Jean to to try to distract and try to blame somebody else other than themselves, and uh, and now it's coming back to bite them, and they they don't want to answer for it. And hey, they've got a majority in government, and they have a, a there's a real arrogance that they they literally think that they can do anything they want to do. Um, I mean, right now there are photos. I saw some photos just right now on Twitter where after the vote. Justin got up on on the desk and he's you know cheering on his team. Good for you. You 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 stuck with the votes and we stopped the the testimony. They actually thought that this is a win for them. That this is a positive because they've been able to, with their majority, not have to be transparent. I think it's that kind of arrogance that comes uh, out of Justin Trudeau and and is kind of at the forefront of what he does, that's going to be one of his downfalls, and I think certainly that's his part of it. Yeah, I saw that photograph of him standing on a desk, and then I saw a tweet from the Veterans Affairs Minister, um, Seamus oh. uh, Reagan, our leader, dear leader. Our, Cap- uh, not, oh, not, oh, Captain, oh, Captain. Oh, Captain, Captain. yeah. I've been watching too much North Korean stuff. <laughs> yes, I thought it was a spoof. I thought somebody was actually mocking Trudeau, but no. it was actually Seamus O'Regan seriously said, oh, Captain, our Captain. Well, it's not a ship I want to sail on. Now, <laughs> no, I, have, well <laughs> I, have another, I have another question for you. I'm going to be talking to Vivian Krauss at the top of the next mm-hmm. hour, and we're going to be talking about the money that's being uh, saddlebagged into Canada. Not sandbagged, but saddlebagged into Canada. It's my term. And uh, to affect our elections, provincially and federally, as American and other interests... Why do uh, you know, there's all this talk about uh, affecting elections? Now we have a sense this is going to happen here. So deliver money to various organizations and have those various organizations do what they need to do in order to create an environment where the party you favor internationally outside of this country may win the election. How do you, uh, how do you respond to that? What's your sense on that? And is there any way in this country that we can forestall this or is that just Im- impossible? Well, first of all, I think Vivian Krauss has done some really, really good work on this. Uh, she's incredibly, incredibly credible, and what she has um, has, has unveiled and uncovered is is really important. Uh, we definitely have to see something done about it. What I'm, I'll tell you what I'm concerned about, and where we as conservatives are looking at what are the best options on how to deal with it. I don't trust the liberals to deal with it because, frankly, this this helped them. And so I don't have a lot of confidence that they're going to do something that would not still in the end give them an advantage. And secondly, I, I am worried that in any way we give Elections Canada more power. Um, I've, right now there are actually a number of investigations in front of Elections Canada on this. We don't know where they're at. 
you know, it's always interesting how Elections Canada can, uh, when, it, when it comes to certain cases, they're on top of it, on the ball, you know, ready to prosecute. But then there are other cases whereby they just seem to let it linger. So I would like to see their response to this. But I think we have to have a, a response whereby we're thinking about what the unintended consequences would be. But overall, whereby uh, outside money, like we saw in the 2015 election, come in, can't come in and be used to campaign uh, based on ideology and also unaccounted for. So no. it definitely is something that has to be addressed. We can't ignore it, but I, I don't, truthfully, I don't even want to see the Liberals try to do something because I am pretty well 100% sure whatever they do will continue to benefit themselves. Does Andrew Scheer ever step on a table and does anybody mm. tweet, Captain, my captain? Can you imagine? No. Can you, you know, <laughs> never, never. All I'm right. have a whole lot of self-importance All right. to do that kind of thing. Ms. Bergen, good talking to you. Thank you so much you for the too. time. Roy, thank, thanks, Bye-bye. Roy. Bye-bye. Candace Bergen. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. With me now is Dan McTague, who can put all of this into perspective because he was a member of parliament for many years, a liberal member of parliament, and he understands the gasoline and oil business, well, the gasoline business from the consumer's perspective better than anybody in the world. <laughs> so, and we've been friends for, I don't know, half a million years. <laughs> it feels that way. How are you, Mr. McTague? Um, not bad, Mr. Green, and uh, just happy that I never got arrested in my 18 years as a member of Parliament. Did you ever do it? I know you did things to piss off Jean Chrétien, but... <laughs> no, I uh, can't remember a time where I did do that. I mean, I was elected to represent my constituents. Um, my job was to bring those uh, matters to the attention of uh, the powers that be uh, on my side or on the other side, uh, depending on when, when I was either in opposition or in government. And that was my role. My role was not to go out and uh, debase my, uh, my, uh, my representation by uh, getting myself arrested as a, nothing less than a stunt. Uh, I'd be far more effective at passing bills, which I did, uh, despite uh, you know, uh, the conventional wisdom that backbenchers never pass uh, any bill into law. So there are several, and uh, I guess that worked. But uh, at the end of the day, I, I don't think this is going to help uh, the cause for those who have decided that this is the only way in which they can uh, make their presence known. It's just too bad that uh, you know the debate here has become such that uh, people are abandoning facts in favor of simply saying, I'll violate the law and uh, try to uh, get some political mileage out of it. Had this happened when you were a member of the, of the Liberal government of Jean Chrétien, and, and then subsequently Paul Martin, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah, both uh, both governments. Yeah. Right. And uh, had this happened uh, under the stewardship of either Mr. Kretschier or Mr. Martin, had Dan McTague or another member of the Liberal caucus decided that civil disobedience was the way to go and get arrested would be the right thing to do, uh, what would the reaction have been from the top of the party? More than likely, I would have been asked a citizen independent until the matter was resolved. I mean, it's one thing to be charged. It's another thing to be convicted. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, uh, there would have been a lot of concern about the fact that uh, you spent so much time getting elected to represent your people, become, in fact, the word parliament, uh, French for speaking out. Uh, why aren't you speaking? Because that's where you can become far more effective. And, you know, I, I started this whole issue with gasoline pricing and the concern I had about independent gas retailers being wiped off the map with my good friend, uh, one of uh, the uh, beasts and beauties here that you have, uh, Linda Leatherdale, many, many years ago, about uh, the, the plight of many of those gas stations. I began with uh, trying to do an end run on the uh, legal system or on parliamentary system and make something votable, uh, which uh, turned out to create quite the storm. But you learn from that process. If you want to cause a revolution, do it on the floor of the House of Commons. Mm-hmm. Well, Linda Leatherdale is going to be with us in about 45 minutes with her Wonderful. collaborators, Catherine Swift and... Uh, Michelle Simpson, and they're going to be joined by Aaron Woodrick, the federal director of the ah. Canadian Taxpayers Federation, for, for one, so this time, for one uh, segment. Very much two beasts. What's that? Two, two beasts. beasts. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Three. Yeah. <laughs> beasts times two. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Explain the BC gas situation to us, please, the prices. What, what, how do you explain it to people? Uh, one word, shortage. Uh, and uh, a second word, critical shortage. It's been going on for a long time. Uh, the population there and demand has grown. Um, it's a large city, our third largest, second largest when it comes to airlines, international airlines. Uh, it's a very enviable, beautiful part of the world and has had a pipeline uh, since 1953, bringing 
oil and then later oil and gasoline from Edmonton all the way down to uh, to Vancouver to to Burnaby. So, you know, the situation is uh, such that today you're paying $1.56 for a litre of gasoline, $1.55.9. By the way, Roy, it's going down $0.02 cents a litre because of the uh, res- resumption of the Olympic uh, pipeline south of the border in Washington State, where about a quarter of Vancouver's gasoline actually comes from. They have to import it from the United States. Uh, but what we're seeing here is a bit of a shortage, and it's not likely to... Uh, and anytime soon. Uh, a small refinery, the Burnaby, uh, owned by a company called Parkland, used to be known as the Chevron Refinery, has been out for about six weeks now, uh, undergoing maintenance. It's a company that's taken over from Chevron, uh, as I mentioned earlier. And it, of course, it uh, has meant that there is a real crimp in supply. Uh, and it's not going to end anytime soon, simply because, uh, you know, what it does provide is virtually 99% of all the fuel in that area, you're still running short and still having to ask our American friends to provide more gasoline. But to make matters really worse, um, the chronic problem that uh, Vancouver, the Lower Mainland, and Victoria, as well as Vancouver Island, are facing um, is not made any better by the fact that uh, the government, the uh, John Horgan government, is set to increase carbon taxes next week by a, a whopping 1.22 cents a litre. Followed that uh, next week by uh, the move from winter to summer gasoline across Canada. That should add four cents a liter to everybody's bill. Ouch! It looks like one sixty was the new normal. The new normal. Now that's for a liter of, of regular. Liter regular one seventy five right now for. Uh, oh man! Oh man! I paid a buck forty four for uh, ninety one octane today, and I was getting more and more annoyed as I saw the numbers get bigger and bigger on the, on yep. the gas pump. Now, look, when, when Mr. Horgan, when the Premier appeals to Justin Trudeau, any point in that? Is there anything Trudeau can do? Well, I think Trudeau has already made it clear that he's going to build a pipeline, and, and, and by my account, I'm no friend of the oil industry, as you too well know, uh, he has to. I mean, the fact is uh, we've lost three pipelines. Trans Mountain mm-hmm. uh, is the only viable option. We've lost Keystone XL due to uh, you know, activity by previous uh, administration in the United States. Uh, we saw the uh, shenanigans going on with uh, paid protesters uh, threatening violence to national, uh, the National Energy Board uh, meetings in uh, Montreal. Montreal over the uh, Energy East. And we've also seen Northern Gateway shut down. Uh, you know, we're, we're really boxing ourselves in, and this is the only viable, reasonable alternative. But what's important is it's not just the amount of oil. An additional 590,000 barrels that we could be sending to world markets and to Washington State refineries, who, by the way, turn around and sell it back to us with 20 cent premiums per liter. We can also, uh, by if you look very clearly at uh, what Trans Mountain proposed on December the 16th, 2013, and which was approved by the National Energy Board under Section 6 of its conclusion, an additional 55,000 barrels of potential gasoline could be coming down that Trans Mountain pipeline that would uh, certainly come to the aid of uh, Vancouver motorists and, in fact, drop prices. Now, I said that on Tuesday. I think uh, the Premier had a fit because he obviously hasn't read anything about the proposal, let alone the approval, and he denied it, which was kind of, I mean, I don't want to say it was laughable, but rather pathetic that a Premier with the resources of his entire department would not be aware of the fact that there's an additional 55,000 barrels of gasoline that would make, that would double the amount of production, by the way, that we currently have in uh, in Vancouver, and it would very much have an effect of dropping prices. Why? Simple math, Roy. Seventy-one cents pre-tax price for gasoline in uh, in Edmonton, ninety-one to ninety-two to ninety-three cents in Vancouver. So there's a twenty-two cent difference. Even if I charge five cents as a toll to bring gasoline from Edmonton all by the pipeline all the way down to Vancouver, I'm still ahead sixteen or seventeen cents. So will it have the effect of dropping prices? Absolutely, and it's a no-brainer. Anybody who suggests otherwise is, frankly, either ignorant or just simply disingenuous. Sometimes I think they get so caught up in insulting one another that <laughs> well that, you know, they, that they lose the facts. Well, you lose sight of the facts, unfortunately, for many people. Uh, this year versus last year, especially in Vancouver, you're looking at digging in an extra $750. Whether you drive a car or not, it's going to have the effect. Think of Vancouver's transit system. Much of it run on diesel, if not on gasoline. The ferry system run on diesel. Uh, these are all fossil fuels, and they are all heavily impacted by the fact that there's a serious, scarce, and uh, 
dramatic shortage of gasoline and uh, other petroleum products, and there is a solution at hand. The longer we keep dithering, the longer we keep waiting, you're not going to be able to get this thing done and then bring prices down. It takes about two years to build a, a pipeline. It takes 10 years to build a refinery. And no one in the right mind is going to build a refinery. Okay. I want to make it really clear. Given the amount of protests uh, and, and nonsense and tomfoolery going around uh, over a simple pipeline, you can imagine no one's going to yeah. invest billions of dollars to invest uh, in a refinery that they okay. desperately need. Gas Buddy Dan, i got to go. Thank you so much for the time. Always good talking to you, Dan. It's always a pleasure. Take Thanks, good care. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Dan McTague from uh, GasBuddy.com. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. When it comes to our federal elections, everything is on the up and up, or maybe there's a little bit of cheating here and there, but... You know, it all balances out. We look at the election results and sometimes we say, how did that happen? And then we go on our way. Well, Vivian Krauss has done a, well, is doing this country a tremendous service with the research that she is conducting on money that is coming into this country in saddlebags uh, for the eco-groups that are opposing the pipelines, and there's money coming into this country from organizations in the United States and perhaps beyond where they want to influence our Canadian elections. And I'm looking at a story from the Vancouver Sun, uh, published Tuesday, May 23, 2017. It reads in part, and I think they're quoting the Calgary Herald here, a report entitled Elections Canada Complaint Regarding Foreign Influence quote, alleges third parties worked with each other, which may have bypassed election spending limits, all of which appears to be in contravention of the Canada Elections Act. The report submitted by Canada Decides, a registered society with three listed directors, including Joan Crockett, a former Conservative MP for Calgary Centre, who lost her seat to Liberal Kent Hur, went on to say the, quote, outcome of the 2015 election was skewed by money from wealthy foreigners, end quote. Uh, it said during the 2015 election, U.S.-based Tides Foundation donated $1.5 million to Canadian third parties and um, registered charities, a little further on in the story, are only allowed to spend a maximum of 10% of their revenues on so-called political activity that is related to their cause. So if you're a rich person or... If you represent an organization that has a vested interest in something happening, you could get into some backdoor lobbying by illegal lobbying, by hurling huge amounts of money at Canadian uh, groups, as I understand it. And here's where I start to get wobbly on my basic knowledge of this. But that money would be directed by the Canadian organizations received from overseas or from the United States and used to influence the election. Vivian Krauss knows this better than anyone. She's the researcher, and we're so, as I said before, we're very lucky to have her. She's done all the research on the money that's coming into this country to fund eco-groups that don't want the pipelines. And now she, Vivian's talking to us about the money that's come in to, to affect elections. Vivian, thank you for what you're doing. Thanks for coming back on the program. And are we talking about in some cases, at least the same organizations that are providing that are bringing money into Canada. Yes, we are. Hey, and thanks for having me back, Roy. That's, I think, the, the most important thing to, to recognize here is that the elections activism is not separate from the anti-pipeline campaign. In fact, it's part of it that the groups that were funded to, to get voters to the polls to try and vote out the conservatives, that was funded as part of the anti-pipeline campaign. Okay, that's the thing that I think is most significant. You have a lot of sort of progressive foundations that are funding the anti-pipeline campaign, and they're funding a, a, a wide range of, of what I think are good causes, things like uh, ending violence against women, ending discrimination, ending racism, um, fighting the, ending the death penalty, and, and a, lot of, a lot of other things that I think a lot of people would agree with. And, but it's not as if they were trying to influence our federal election in order to further those causes. No, that's not what this was about. This was specifically about the anti-pipeline campaign. It was defeating the Conservative Party of Canada because it supported pipelines that would break the U.S. monopoly on our oil. That is the reason. And that, I think, 
is why this elections um, activism is so objectionable, and it would be no matter which country was funding it. Yeah. So when the uh, federal election of 2015 was about halfway through, the Liberal Party and Justin Trudeau were still in third place. They were behind the Conservatives. They were behind the NDP. They were in third place. And then they made this miraculous jump. Even 48 hours before the vote, there was some this question. There were lots of stories, news, news stories. Saying, I don't, who's going to win? Will it be a minority government? Will it be a majority government? Did how Describe first how the money comes into the country and how it's put to use to affect a federal or a provincial election. Sure. So um, just just to, if I could just clarify something I, I said um, be, before your question, Roy. I, I said, you know, that I, I think this campaign is objectionable no matter which country funds it. But I, I want to I clarify that. I don't mean to suggest that this was funded by the U.S. government. I think this is a very important distinction between the situation we have in, in Canada with these U.S.-backed groups or U.S.-funded uh, groups versus the situation in, in the United States. In our case, I don't see that any evidence that this was directed by the U.S. government. On the contrary, this was funded, this elections activism is funded by a group of private charitable foundations. And I, it, they do have links to the U.S. government. They are part of an umbrella organization that was created by the U.S. government. But I think it's an important distinction to make so that we don't give a, a false uh, impression that, in fact, this is U.S. government meddling in Canada's federal election. Sure. So we're talking about registered charities. Yes. That receive charitable foundations. Okay. And it's, it, is, it, is it Canadian registered charitable foundations receiving no, money American. from the United States or American foundations moving money into Canada? It, it's American charitable foundations, which, by the way, are not allowed to fund elections activism in any country. This, this, they, it's, it, this is, is what they're doing, as far as I can tell, um, is illegal. That, um, and in fact, it, there are many documents that, in, that they refer to. Uh, for example, the executive director of the American organization that, as far as I can tell, is the parent organization of Lead Now. He, he says in, in, he said in a job description, for example, that his organization keeps a very low profile, that you won't find much about it on Google because of the sensitivity of its political activity. So even by their own admission, they're trying to keep, they, they try to keep, and I quote, a low profile. So just to answer, to get back to finally answering your question. So what we've seen is that in the United States, there's a long history of environmental groups getting involved in Canadian elections and trying to bring into power governments that will enact their policies and the type of regulations that they want for protecting the environment which is fine, actually. I think that, that makes sense. Most, most um, sort of advocacy groups want governments who will enact policy that favors their, their position. But what we see here is that the funders of environmental activism in Canada, which, by the way, you know, going back 20, 20 years, there's been a, a large amount of American money that has funded the environmental movement. And going back 20 years, even as, you know, well, not quite 20, but say going back to 2001, 2002, there was already money coming in 15 years ago to create in Canada an organization that is similar to the League of Conservation Voters in the U.S. And in British Columbia, for example, we have an, or, uh, an entity it's, uh, called Organizing for Change. It's a project of Tides Canada Foundation. It's run out of the Tides Canada Initiative Society. It's U.S.-funded. It's funded by American charitable organizations. And in every British Columbia and provincial election, also in municipal elections, and also in the federal election, it's active to try and bring into power and defeat politicians and parties um, whose, whose policies are not supported by these U.S.-funded activist groups. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. At Fair Questions on Twitter, that's Vivian Krause's Twitter account. Follow at Fair Questions. You'll find out so much about what's going on. And particularly uh, now as we're talking about the elections in this country, and frankly, people are trying to buy our elections. So, uh, Vivian, let me ask you about CRA. Canada Revenue Agency. We've talked about them a fair bit on this program recently. So we know how much money that registered charities can uh, can can uh, put toward the total revenue toward election contributions. But what was the outcome of the audits conducted by CRA 
of the political activities of registered charities. Well, this is, I think, such an important uh, matter here, Roy, and I'm glad you asked about it. Because really, un- the, as, as I see it, the, the protecting the integrity and the, so- the sovereignty of our election starts with the Canada Revenue Agency. It's the charities directorate that has to ensure that charities are not misused, uh, especially not misused to Canadianize foreign funds. That's the problem that I'm seeing, is that charities are being used um, simply to take in money, and then it becomes, for purposes of uh, Canada elections, it's Canadian when it is then regranted to another organization. So as long as the CRA lets these charities e- exist that are funding elections activism, there's really, as far as I can tell, there's really not much that Elections Canada can do to stop it. So the problem needs to be, the problem that I see it is I, I see clearly that the Charities Directorate is not enforcing the law. It is not enforcing the Income Tax Act, specifically the clause in the Income Tax Act that specifies that the activities of charities need to be exclusively charitable. There's been so much discussion about, you know, whether charities can do 10% or 20% uh, political activity, but that, that whole discussion has been on the wrong tangent because charities are only allowed to do 10 to 20% political activity if it furthers a charitable purpose. If it doesn't, then the allowable percentage of charitable political activity isn't 10 or 20%, it's zero. That's the thing. We've been putting emphasis on the wrong syllable. We need to talk about what constitutes charity, what is allowable charitable activity, and what isn't. And the charities that are conducting activities that are not charitable should be shut down. And it shouldn't take the CRA five years to do it. No, and if, and if it's not done, then the, the loophole, or at least the door, remains open for the kinds of interference that we've, uh, that we've been talking about. Now, yeah. the, the CRA is not the only player in the game. Elections, or Canada elections is as well. And I know you made uh, submissions uh, to Canada elections, and, and uh, you weren't the only one, but you made substantial submissions. And we'll ask you where our listeners can, can, uh, can read them in a moment. But what happened as far as contacting Canada elections? or elect- It's Canada elections, not Elections Canada, right? Yes. Okay, I keep wanting to say Elections Canada. I know, it's kind of confusing. You've got Elections Canada, which runs the election, and then you've got Canada Elections, which deals with complaints. The commissioner deals with complaints, Monsieur Yves Côté. Okay, so what did did you let them know, and and how did they respond? What was their reaction? What did they do? Well, what happened is, um, you know, uh, Joan Crockett, out of the blue, submitted a report in the spring of last year. But she didn't release the whole report to the public. So there couldn't be a proper open discussion about the merits of the report, any of the evidence that was presented, etc. And and the whole thing kind of uh, had a dead cat bounce because you know there were a couple of media stories on it, but there, it it didn't wasn't there wasn't a sustained a proper discussion of it. And most importantly, there was nothing conclusive that came out of that. So what happened is when she when she submitted her report and there was a little bit of media coverage. I could tell right away that without a publicly available set of documents that everybody can lay their eyes on, and every, so everybody is discussing the same thing, it wasn't going to go anywhere. So I submitted all, all of what I had been working on. I put eight months into this during 2016. And so I just you know, hurriedly, within a week, kind of finalized what I had and sent it to Canada Elections. And I just let what I felt was due process take place. I submitted it. And then, sure enough, in August, late August of 2017, I, I got a phone call. And they, you know, sent out two investigators in September. And, of course, you know, put me on the record, tape recorders and, and so forth. And I, you know, answered their questions. It took about four hours. And, um, you know, we went through all the various documents. And I must say, I, I was very impressed. The thoroughness with which the investigators had gone through my submission I, was very impressive. Um but, you know, it was interesting because at the end of it, they said, uh, I might add, once the tape recorders were off, that, you know, they're frustrated. The investigators were frustrated because they said, we can only enforce the law. We can't change the law. And, you know, there are loopholes in, in the Canada Elections Act at the moment that um, one of the problems is that there's a list of things for which you must report the spending. 
And then below that, there's a, uh, it says now the following items you do not need to report spending on. And that's all the stuff that counts. It's all the online stuff, creation of websites, you know, and a whole bunch of things. So what we've got right now are requirements that are 20 years out of date because so much of elections uh, activism is now online. And the elections that needs to be brought up to date in, in keeping with how elections today are fought. So this is now a call to the people of Canada to get involved, get engaged, because otherwise you're counting on political parties to do it for you, and you can't do that. Yeah, I think what we need, what we need now, Roy, is uh, is is media coverage. You know, the the media needs to. They're the ones who can can get some answers here. I, you know, when I started this work seven years ago. I started, you know, my blog, my Twitter account is Fair Questions because I didn't have the answers. I was concerned about what I thought might happen based on what I had seen happen with the salmon farming industry in British Columbia. And I saw that the same foundations using the same strategies, same tactics, in many cases the same individuals, even the same scientific journals, they were turning their sights on Alberta oil. And I thought, oh, no, this is not going to be good. If they do to Alberta oil, Canada's single most important economic export if they do that, what they did to farm salmon, make it look like, you know, the baloney of the energy market or the seafood counter, we're going to be in trouble. And so that's why I started looking at this. But seven years down the road, we have answers to a lot of the questions that and the concerns that I had seven years ago. The answers are now clear. In fact, some of them are crystal clear. So now it's time for action. But we're only going to get, you know, the type of, of action that we need if our elected officials raise this. Our members of parliament need to raise this in the House of Commons. That's where the discussion needs to happen. And okay. if, they, if, our, if they start doing that, then the media will cover it, and then I think we will get some answers out of the CRA and Canada election. We have about 30 seconds left. For people to go to find what you submitted, for people to find your information, your blog, where do they go? You can just Google me. Google Vivian Fair Questions. You should get my blog. It's called Rethink Campaigns. On Twitter, I'm uh, at Fair Questions, and I just tweeted a bunch of stuff, Roy, that you know links to specific documents that people can can take a peek at. Okay, that's great. At Fair Questions, and you know we'll uh, we'll be asking you back on this program regularly. Oh, that's great, Roy. Thanks so thanks very much. Well, thank you for what you're doing for all of us, Vivian. Oh, I know friend. you did it alone for a long time, <laughs> and now finally, yeah, and now finally, there people are sitting up and saying, "Wait a minute, this is important material. It's really important stuff for all of us." Vivian Krauss, at Fair Questions on uh, on Twitter, and you can just uh, Google at Vi- or Google Vivian Krauss and Fair Questions, and you'll find the information. Thanks, Vivian. Thank you so much. The Roy Green Show, weekends from two to five on nine hundred CHML.